Hey cousins, you are listening to Revolutionary Hood Rap with Kim Young of Dope Black Social Worker and welcome back. We did it. I don't know what the it is. It's just the idea of like, I'm tired. <laughs> and so I guess the it is like that I'm actually going to put together a podcast episode this week because I care that much about y'all and I want to make sure that this information gets out into the world. So that is the it. That is the it. Um. Anyways. I am grateful, continuously grateful that y'all show up for me and show up for each other. Just know I truly feel the support, the encouragement, the love, the protection, all of the things, the energies, all of the things that y'all be sending my way. And I'm not even bullshitting about that. I really do feel lifted up and cared for um, from this community and by this community. Y'all dope as shit, like... And I love that for me and ultimately for us. But let's go ahead and jump into the revolutionary news for the week. And y'all already know revolutionary news is going out to us in Virginia um, because I have another advocacy update with House Bill 606, which is the piece of legislation that we have in the General Assembly this session that will create a licensing alternative or an option in Virginia that would not require those that are seeking clinical social worker licensure to take the Association of Social Work Board exam. I mean, yeah, exam. Woo, see, I'm tired. <laughs> so my advocacy update is our bill has officially been assigned to the committee um, and it is in the subcommittee of health professions and our bill is up for a vote in the committee um, actually today. So when you when this episode is released, so February 1st, and so by the time this episode is out in the world, me and the squad will be down at the General Assembly to offer up comments of support um, to hopefully get the bill to get yes votes, vo- yes votes and then move from subcommittee into the full committee. And then we will have to go back again and give public comments of support to hopefully get that bill out of committee and onto the House floor for a vote. And so things are feeling good and looking good. Had a number of stakeholder meetings and conversations with folks to bring them over to our side to support this legislation and or neutralize them. Um, but the option we could not leave on the table was for folks to get out in the world, start talking wild and cause harm to this movement. And so we were able to have some really important conversations with some um, stakeholder holders and organizations to get them on the side of right, which is creating this licensing alternative. And so things are feeling good and looking good. So that is our revolutionary news for the week. And in terms of the episode, y'all already know we have a guest and it is one of my favorite people who our relationship started on Instagram, moved into real life, already had the chance to kick it with our guests a couple of times. Like they pulled up on me here in Richmond. We did hood rat things together and the vibes online match the vibes in real life. So you already know that's my type of energy. And so the guest for Revolutionary Hood Rat this week is Dr. Alicia Tete. Hopefully I said that right, that last name right, because Alicia told me, I said, girl, how you pronounce your last name? She was like, Pate. So Tete, like Pate. So hopefully I got it right. Anyways, Dr. Alicia Tete (laughs) is a licensed clinical social worker that is based in Charlotte, North Carolina. And y'all, I had to side note, somebody had asked me like, oh, am I going to go visit Charm City or whatever the tagline is? For Charlotte, I probably actually just got it wrong again. Is it Queen City or is it Charm City? Is Charm City Baltimore? Child, anyways, they was like, are you going to go visit Queen City? And I thought they was talking about a strip club. I said, I will. Is that a strip club? They was like, oh, no, that's Charlotte. I said, oh, shit, my bad. Anyways, Dr. Alicia is based in Charlotte, North Carolina and graduated from Virginia Commonwealth University with a bachelor's in social work and then Howard University with a master's in social work. But she was like, that ain't enough. So let me go ahead and get this doctorate. And so the good doctor went and got a doctorate degree from Simmons College of Social Work. And Alicia currently runs her own private practice. It's a group practice and it continues to grow. It's really dope to watch the growth. The name of this practice is Building Endurance where she provides outpatient therapy to children and adults, clinical supervision for those that are seeking licensure and educational trainings for the community. Dr. Alicia, and I'm going to keep saying the doctor because we're going to put some respect on the doctor because I know 
She worked hard for that thing. Dr. Alicia also created the Attune app that is spelled A-T-T-U-N-E um, in hopes of connecting more individuals to mental health services. And she also authored the book Not Healed as F-Bomb. Fuck, I'm gonna just say it. So it is not healed as fuck which is a journal created for those in the helping profession to practice reflection and self-care. So Dr. Alicia walks firmly in her faith and believes sincerely in the power of change. She also enjoys a good laugh, good food, good drinks um, with friends and family, being outdoors, reading and spending time with her children. And so let's go ahead and jump into this conversation with Dr. Alicia. All right, Alicia. Oh, it's going to be a good one. I don't even know what we're going to talk about. Quite. I have an idea, but like, it's going to be a good conversation and I cannot wait to dive into it. Thank you so much for agreeing to join me on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I, I um am looking forward to the laughs. <laughs> well first let me start with this because we still are recording in the season of the Capricorn and so happy birthday happy Capricorn season happy man, all of those things man. all of those things I hope happy it's pretty well. it is our time it is our time and it's I hope I hope you got separate gifts from Christmas and your birthday I did good 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 because, yeah we deserve we deserve Cool. Um, let's go ahead and jump into the place where I love to start with everyone who joins me. Um, just so folks are kind of getting grounded in what Revolutionary Hood Rat is turning into, it's really becoming this platform to be able to elevate the stories and experiences of Black and Brown folks that find themselves in this work, because oftentimes mm -hmm. we are forgotten about. Our stories don't hold center to the foundation of this profession. We are the foundation of this profession. And if I can do anything, it's going to be to increase the visibility of who we are as whole people in this work. And so that is why I love to ask the question around just what is the pathway that brought you into this work? How'd you, how'd you get here? You know, I came from a working family. Um, I was a first generation college student, so I didn't know anything about college at all. Um, and my grandmother raised me mostly. <clears throat> and I have a great aunt. She's my grandmother's youngest sister who is impacted by schizophrenia. Mm. But when I was younger, we just said that she heard voices. We didn't have any vocabulary. So me and my grandma used to um, like refill her meds, used to meet with her. We called her the worker, but it was a social worker. Mm -hmm. We used to meet with her worker. Um, we used to take her her food, take her to her appointments. And so when I decided to go to college, I started studying nursing because my grandmother wanted to be a nurse and she didn't get to go to college. Um Still didn't know anything about social work until I was working at the hospital and um, I saw this lady very well dressed and she was going <laughs> from family to family. And I used to work on um, the cancer unit, the pediatric cancer unit. And so one day during my break, I asked her like, what was her job? Because people loved seeing her, you know mm. what I'm saying? They looked forward to seeing her. And she was like, oh, I'm, a, I'm the social worker. And I was like, well, what is that? Mm. And um she started to describe it to me and I was like oh that's who I am that's that's who I'm supposed to be and um I decided to change my major drop my scholarship I had a military scholarship because I was in ROTC and uh I remember my family being like you want to take people's kids away uh -huh. and I was like, yeah that's kind of <laughs> <laughs> I was like I don't know nothing about that I just want to be like the lady like helping connect people to resources and really helping people like bringing people together. Like that was my understanding of it. And so that's, that's how I got my start. So like you fell into it. Right. And Literally. so, yeah, like yet again, I'm talking to another black social worker who didn't have like these aspirations. And the reason like I reference it this way, cause maybe you had, well, nah, shit, you probably didn't have the experience because you was at an HBCU. Anyways, my PWI has in social work school around like all the white students talking about they always dreamed of being a social worker, always had a goal of becoming a social mm -hmm. worker. 
And the more black social workers that I talked to and get like their origin story of how they came into this work, it was never like this aspirational goal or dream to be a social worker. Like they literally found themselves in the field. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. I'm really curious about more like the foundations of what that is, what that's about. And so I know a little mm -hmm. bit about you bopping all over this here United States, right? You lived a couple of different places, a couple of different lives. And throughout your time of moving, <laughs> throughout your time of moving or throughout the country, um, not unknowingly, like we kind of been in the same places, right? Like you were down here in Richmond, Virginia and attended VCU for undergrad, correct? Mm -hmm. What did you study mm -hmm. when you were there? So I started out in nursing school. So mm -hmm. I was on MCV's campus the majority of the time. And then um, I switched my major to social work at the end of my sophomore year. And so you so went to I the BSW program. Okay. Got you. So mm -hmm. you got your social work, your bachelor's uh, degree at VCU. And then that's where yep. you went up to Howard. Yep. Master's? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I went to Howard. I wanted to go to Howard for undergrad. Um they were not giving me enough money and they didn't have the ROCC option. Mm. So the opportunity, one of my professors, um, Dr. Rotabi, who I love um, at VCU, when I was getting ready to graduate, she was like, you need to go to grad school. I was like, grad school. She was like, yeah, you don't know how to write. And I was like, okay. Oh, she God was like, dang. you need to go. And yeah. She said it just like, just that. like, that, like yeah, you need to go. You need to improve your writing. And I was like, Hmm. Never thought about grad school, but um, I was like, well, I guess I'll try to get go to Howard again since I didn't go get to go um, undergrad. So what was that experience like, right? Going to VCU, even though Richmond, it continues to change. But at the time you were down here for undergrad, still a black ass city, still black yeah. ass heart and core here in the city of Richmond. Um, but even though the city was black as hell, the school is probably reflective of other demographics, right? And then going to what many people refer to as the Mecca, but you can't tell them people at Hampton that that's the case. Um, because <laughs> they believe they something they completely the different. They believe something completely different. Um, but what was that experience like for you attending an HBCU to get your social work degree? It was like night and day because I'm not going to hold you. I loved my time at VCU. Um I was like very naive and like didn't know what was going on. It was a huge school, very arts focused. Um, and so we always had something happening, like something that we could attend. And the food was great. The gym facilities were great. Um, I spent the last two years really enmeshed in Delta. So it the school felt very black because yeah. the fraternity and sorority community is very small and close so then I get to Howard and I'm like why the campus look like this I was looking for the gym and the the, the I remember the girl telling me I was like yeah she was like um I had my workout clothes on right she was like we don't that's that's not what the gym is for I was like well what is it for then for she said it's for um you have to go to gym class and I was like, okay, so where, where can we work out at? She was like, oh, you got to go work out somewhere else. So it was just a very different, different experience. Yeah. It was night, it was night and day, <clears throat> night and day. However, I grew a lot at Howard. Um, and my dean, the dean of my program at the time, um, Dr. Snell was from South Africa. Every year he took us and I did alternative spring break to Haiti. So Howard really introduced me to the world. Like that yeah. was my first leaving the country. Um, and I left the country every year while I was in school. So that was a really different, just a very different experience. I had never had so many black professors. Like yeah. at VCU, all my professors were white, except um, Dr. Utsi in the psychology program. Mm -hmm. um, but all my social work professors were white. And then I got to Howard and it was like, oh my God, I didn't know there were this many black professors mm. in the world. Mm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was just... It was it was crazy to me. Um, and we really had a totally different perspective on social work at Howard as well. Um, there was a lot of emphasis around like the black perspective, which we weren't taught at VCU. Right. Um, and then just a lot of emphasis on um, what is our role with black and brown folks 
that was that was huge like in service to like doing the work mm-hmm. yeah yeah so you mean like y'all mm-hmm. were able to say like black out loud in class and oh. shit and like people just yeah, understood yeah, yeah. <laughs> you didn't have people in your class that was shocked that poverty existed wow yeah oh must yeah. be nice no. must be nice <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and we didn't. I didn't have a lot of white classmates. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't imagine the difference that makes in a field like social work, especially as a student who is attempting to learn, right, about mm-hmm. the, his, the history of social work, the frameworks and delivery and theories of social work practice. And to be able to be around predominantly folks who look like you and educators who look like you who are hopefully rooted in like um, a paradigm that is supportive of your racial and cultural identity has to make a difference in how that student comes out on the other end of their program and begins to engage in the work. Um, Mm -hmm. And so even thinking about your time as a graduate student going to H- going to an HBCU and then what was kind of the motivating factor that led you to get your your doctorate in social work because you didn't got you didn't have to go do that so like what made you go do that and this is the spot that i need to say very ghetto when i recommend um <laughs> i <laughs> i was practicing for like nine almost 10 years before I decided to get my doctorate I never that was never in my plan I was practicing happily too you know no no issues um however I had some really impactful professors at Howard and so I always thought like okay I'm gonna do whatever I need to do so that I can be a professor Mm. one day um so that I can be just as impactful to somebody as they were to me so that was one thing that was in the back of my head what's interesting enough when I lived in New York I'll never forget I used to go to this great church um phenomenal church uh very popular so I'm not gonna say the name um but the wife of the pastor uh is um a counselor right Hmm. she has her master's in counseling Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'll never remember, I'll never forget meeting with her. I wanted to like bring some mental health stuff in and she was like, oh, um, so you have your doctorate, right? And I was like, no, I have my master's. And she kind of like yeah. did like a, like yeah, a yeah, little Yeah, yeah, trying to come for you, trying to come for you. Yeah, she did. And I was like, wow. I was like, okay, this is weird. Um, And so then I would be in other spaces and it almost felt like our own people. Yeah didn't want to be helped unless they could call me Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so. And so my initial reasons behind getting it was probably ego driven. Um, I felt like I needed it to prove to you that I could help you. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, And I think it also speaks to just my own work that I've had to do around like not being good enough and and da, 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 da. I feel like that was just a professional layer mm. of it honestly um and going through the doctor was very traumatic I mean I'll never do it again I'll never do it again and I feel like I came out very differently than what yeah. I went into it as um and I definitely have a deeper appreciation for researchers I have a different perspective of literature and like Mm. what we're taught what we read I I have a deeper deeper appreciation for that um but again I'm just reminded that like we're good enough as we are Mm. and we don't necessarily need to add something else just because one or two people don't see that right Right. So you sharing that makes me think about, um, and I have these conversations with other folks in the work around like the the people who go out there and just collect an alphabet behind their name, right? Like they go and get mm-hmm. every certification under the sun. And before you know it, it's first yep. name, last name, 27 additional alphabet behind their name, I guess, trying to... Yep. Who knows? Who knows what they're in pursuit of, but it's likely like running away mm-hmm. from the belief that they are already good enough as they are and able yep. to practice effectively and efficiently without having to go get all those additional credentials and letters behind them ne- behind their names. And so that yep. leads me into the next thing that I want to talk about with you is really showing up authentically in the work 
and how difficult that is. I want to take a moment to acknowledge how difficult it is, but then how liberating yeah. it is and how incredibly important it is, right? Of showing up yeah. in the work. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because I do not come from a family that encourages authenticity. I come from a family where you're supposed to present just so and, and say, you know, just so um, and really not make a lot of noise. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I am the, um, you know, the unicorn uh, or like say black sheep, but I am different in that way because I don't believe in that. I believe in, you know, showing up as, you know, who I am. Um, when I got my first when I had my first interview to teach at the university, I taught a white woman how to care for an Afro. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it, was, it was a great teaching demonstration. If I say so myself, I got the job. <laughs> um, <laughs> but <laughs> I have I have been very intentional around, especially at, when it comes to higher ed. Um, I can't be there if I can't be me. You know, so if there's this expectation of no tattoos and no nose ring and yeah. no head coverings and, and all these other things, then it's just not really the work environment for me. And I recognize, um, I think I've talked to people and they're like, well, everybody can't do that. And I'm like, I can't speak for everybody. I can only speak for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will not. I will not be in an environment. I won't work in an environment where I can't show up as myself. I had one job when I was in New York. Um, my clinical supervisor was an older white male. Um, and he just was not, we, we did not connect, you know, we did not connect. And I'm grateful because every supervisor I had after that was a totally different experience. But, um, I just remember being there and I was like, I cannot be in an environment like this again. I cannot, mm. like, I don't know how much money it is. I can't be in an environment where, um, I'm not getting what I need. Um, because I'm supposed to be helping other people. <laughs> so yeah, do you feel like I, in those environments feel... though? Like just just kind of go like staying there for a little bit. Like, do you feel like in those environments there have been times when you had to compromise your morals or your values, right? To kind of fit the work? Or was it more or less the way you were treated? Or was it like the things you were being asked to do or a combination of everything? It it has been leadership. It's been less about the agency and more yeah. about the leadership so for him. It was that when I was in California, I worked, um, I did HIV work in, in LA. And then I did some community based work for an organization called DD Hirsch. My clinical supervisor, I loved her white woman, Reagan Duffy, love her to death. But my daggone director was a black woman. She was an AKA and she, now why you have I, to I say mean, that? She, See, that's how, that's how rumors get that. started and beef. Well, now we had to mention sorry that. About that sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> great, great director. You know, if she ever gets a hold of this. But it, it 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 was not, it was a I would be in supervision crying because of how she treated me. And nobody understood it because this was yeah. also that that job that I had, that was one of the I was one of two black therapists. All the other therapists were white. Um, and she felt like she was supposed to be our mentor. It was really yeah. It was strange. It, and you mentioned like, she was a black woman, the director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the director was black. My clinical supervisor was black. But the director was like, why don't you want me to mentor you? It was like yeah, that. Yeah. And I was like, I, I, I just got here. You know what I mean? Like, I don't <laughs> understand what's happening. So I've also had that experience where it's like, you should want me to bring you into the fold, which is which is fine, but I'm the type of person, if I need help, I can ask. Right. I don't right. need, you know what I mean? And that, and that I'm going to tell you, that first week I was there, I got pulled into the office because one of the other supervisors felt like I didn't ask enough questions. And I was like, what kind of? That's wild. And, I, and again, that was my first time working in an office full of therapists. And I was like, well, maybe this is what it's like. Everybody yeah. overthinking. Like I don't know process, it was weird. It's processing like a bitch everywhere. They want to process everything. Everything. Um, but you bring it up, you bring it up the your the director at the time being a black woman and thinking about like the challenges, the struggles you had in that environment makes me think about some of the greatest harm I've ever experienced in this work has been like at the hands of black women in positions of leadership. 
And right at the same time, they've also been the ones who have supported me um, in ways that like is important for young black women and who are trying to find themselves in professional settings. But it really is a heartbreaking experience that I think a lot of folk will never understand. They'll never understand. But what I have come to really recognize is when that harm was occurring, those were black women of a different generation who had fear about the way that I show up authentically fear about the way that I speak yep. fear about the way that I dress fear about the way that I just say no to things that they couldn't imagine saying no to and so their fear would come out in the form of like this toxic mentorship they thought they were offering me or guidance they thought that they were offering me when it really was trying to snuff out the light inside of me because I believe they were fearful of what could happen right mm-hmm. um And that makes me really curious about what you believe our role and responsibilities are, because we're of a different generation. And some of the most Mm -hmm. recent research has come and say, like, millennials are the the workforce right now, right? Like, we make up a great sector of the Mm -hmm. workforce. And we're also the ones that are moving into the same leadership roles, like becoming directors of agencies, running private practices, all this type of shit, right? And I think we have this different approach, I'm hoping, to work (laughs) in supporting folks in work settings. What do you believe the role and responsibility is of millennials in positions of leadership empowering these organizations and agencies? You know, it's, um, I was gonna, and I I mean, I still kind of believe this. I don't know. I feel like that might be a a Capricorn thing, but I definitely have learned to recognize when people don't understand you or they can't understand why you are so authentically you. It's like, I got to eliminate you. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I gotta, That's how it comes up in my head. I ain't like, got time like, to explain shit to you. Like, move, move around, move around. <laughs> if I wasn't a therapist and social worker, I would stay in that energy all day long. But because I recognize when I'm doing it, I'll address it, but I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, it's just a very, it's very interesting to me. And I, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that for <laughs> another day Um, <clears throat> because it shows up personally and professionally, yeah. you know what I mean? But being in this role, um, when I started providing clinical supervision and being a trainer and, and all of these other things, um, my biggest thing was I am going to treat you like a human first, whether mm-hmm. you decide to leave, go be a lawyer or, um, a NASCAR driver, I'm going to support whatever it is that you want to do. And that really shocks some people because for example, if somebody is leaving a role in the past, people have felt guilted, but whenever somebody comes to tell me it's time for them to move on, you know, they've served their time. It's time to do something. It's next. a celebration. Yes. I'm celebrating it's you. It's a celebration. And so surprised. And I'm like, I thought you were going to be mad. And I'm like, Ooh. no, I want you to live your best life. Whatever that looks like. Yeah. I, you know, and, and I tell my students the same thing. If you leave my class and you decide to leave social work, whatever floats your boat. You know what I mean? I, I And I think that is, I am really in support of we're humans first. And I think you need to do what's best for you in your season. It's mm-hmm. not about my agenda. Um, and I think that really throws people because they're like, what in the heck? You know, they're again, so accustomed to people being like, and that's not what you, that wasn't the plan. And I'm like, plans change, plans change people's, you know, how you feel about a a space may change, or this is where, you know, you take a job sometimes because you need the insurance. Sometimes you need the money. Sometimes you need the supervision hours. I always Mm -hmm. tell my folks, you got to know what you need in your season. And it's not about what I feel about it because I'm not you. I don't. Right. I don't have. I'm not in your shoes. So I really think it's our responsibility to be treating each other like humans first and not holding us to this fire or this standard that has nothing to do with the person at all. And I think you know, and for me, it because I, I echo a lot of the things that you shared about being like in this position where you supervise or lead teams is I think about my mom, like I'm the daughter of a boomer, the generation that took a job and stayed for like 25 years. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when I think about the sacrifices that folks in that generation made in terms of like, they sacrificed their joy, their time, sometimes family relationships, all time, ty- all type of stuff, just to make work the center of their lives. 
And then um, when I talk to a lot of millennials, uh, it's really this understanding of like, nah, if I don't like this job, I promise you, like, I'm going to quit the job, right? And a lot of folks in like the workforce space don't understand this shift that's happening. I literally begin new endeavors, no matter what they are, with a five-year deadline. I will not be anywhere in any position longer than five years, right? Because there, I believe there's <laughs> something that happens inside of you where if you're still in the same place in five years, then like, what are you not honoring? What are you not being truthful mm -hmm. about? And so when people, to your point, then when they want to, when they're talking to you about their transitions, and even like for me, with leading teams, I'll, I'll ask people on my team. Like, what's the three-year plan? Like, what's what's going on? My hope is like, yeah. you won't be here in three years. Like, how can you use this organization's resources, relationships to help leverage your next opportunity? Exactly. Right? Like, use what exactly. your new role to leverage where you want to go next. Don't get in here and get comfortable and stay. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that is important that we're talking to folks that are coming into this work new with wide eyes because I don't believe anybody in a social work role should be in one for like longer than five years. You need to move around literally. You got to move around or else I blindly yep. or not, I believe you'll get in a position of unknowingly causing harm to those you thought you were helping or serving when you stay too long, you hold mm -hmm. on to something too tight, you get blind, you can't mm -hmm. see, right? You can't, you don't grow. Anymore. You do not grow. Yeah. And you can make people's yeah. conditions worse. And so I think a lot of us that are stepping into these like leadership roles are taking that approach. Um, and in mentorship roles are taking that approach with students is helping them understand like you need to be able to go into places, get what you're going to get and move on. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that even makes me want to talk to you about um, this work. This work hurt. Mm. This work, <laughs> this work is um harmful in ways that I don't believe folks recognize until after the fact, right? So they um say it again. I said until they're out of it. Until they're out of it, right? Like this is some, and it. I don't even like the word difficult because life is pretty messy and difficult regardless of what you do. This shit honestly mm -hmm. is just not natural. Like, I don't believe it is natural for a lot of direct service practitioners to see the things that we see, hear the things that we see, hear, do the things we are asked to do, document some of the things that we experience, report and snitch, right? Like get people, sometimes setting people up for more harm by like systems or other individuals. Mm -hmm. Like this is, this is not normal. Our work mm -hmm. is not normal. And so when we kind of think about it in that context, we're already putting ourselves in the front line of experiencing harm. But what are yeah. the ways that you believe that folks can approach this work? But like, even like a harm reduction mindset, but also this recognizing mm -hmm. like, we're gonna experience pain, but like, we don't have to suffer. The suffering doesn't have to endure. The pain is gonna happen. The harm is gonna happen. But what are some ways that folks can approach this work? Well, I just harm reduction in mind. Yeah. I think one of the first thing that comes to mind is you need a social work friend. You need somebody else. Um, even if you don't, if you don't like a, even if you don't like a big group, that's okay. But you need like one or two friends that really get it that you can talk to. Yeah. You know what I mean? That you can speak the language that you can run things by like, Girl, my supervisor said this. And it's like, wait, well, they shouldn't be saying that. You know what I mean? Like you need, you need at least one. I think that's super important. Um, and hopefully that can help too as a reminder of like, you're not the work. I, I just yeah. I I when I meet people, like I was um, where was I? I was speaking at a food and beverage um conference and now what was a social the, worker doing at a food and beverage conference? Girl, I was talking about burnout in women. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. They put me up at the Ritz. I ain't know how to act, okay? Listen, um, act appropriately. Like a hood. Listen. Man, man. Yeah. Okay. It was lovely. <laughs> um, and one of the ladies shared that she was like dreaming about um the events. And I was like, hmm. And um, I remember <laughs> when I first started out, 
how when I when I didn't know how to decompress and I didn't know any of those things, I was taking that home and and wearing that and feeling yeah. that. And even now, like I'm really not seeing a lot of clients, not needing any more clients because I can just feel the pain. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. I do all the things, the gym and things and this and that, but it is very painful. It's very painful to carry so much pain all the time yeah um and my my perspective has changed around you know I used to be this proud like I'm a trauma therapist and I help heal and da, da, da. And now I'm like I'm about to change lanes I'm gonna go be a financial social worker or Dumb. something else. you know what I'm saying I'm gonna go do something else I'm gonna for example for this for this next couple of months I'm doing a lot of I'm teaching yoga I'm teaching yoga everywhere I'm going into and I'm teaching yoga to girls and I love it. That's the majority of my teaching yoga and, and, and teaching, right? Because um that that taking in the stories. Mm -mm. Yeah. And I've been out of the game in terms of like direct service work since 2019. And I still from time to I'd have to be like triggered by situations. Um and they're mainly situations that come up like when I'm at work. I don't be dreaming about this shit, I promise you. I don't do that. <laughs> But I still can, like, the pain from previous clients or stories and, like, events that have happened to me throughout my career, like, they'll pop back up. I was literally yeah. at an event, and it was at, I went into the space, and I was already thinking about how many exits, how, like, how many ways are there out. Mm -hmm. And that comes from my time of, like, working inside of institutions. Like, even hearing, like, loud yep. bangs, like, that's the sound of, like, doors and all. So, like, that, right, still in my body. And I do all the yeah. things too. I don't teach yoga, but I practice yoga. I do all the yeah. things, but like, it's still in my body. And I recognize that I'm not built for this work. And I, you can't convince me that anybody is built to do this shit forever. Cause like I said, this is painful. This is not yeah. normal work. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm gonna ask the question. Like, do you believe some of this work has, has anything to do with it being a calling for folk? Cause everybody can't do it everybody can't do it and I'm always like I am a very practical person okay Same. I'm a I'm a practical person and one so, plus one will always equal two in my world period okay so when I'm in class, you know like <laughs> <laughs> when I'm in class with my students and they come with this you know and this is at certain institutions they just I just believe and I'm just like well I don't know how true that is. I don't I don't know that it's it's a it's a calling more so than you're trying to resolve an unresolved problem. More of us are trying to resolve an unresolved problem. Woo. That that is that's why we're here. Come on, not, doctor. Not because we got called and led and, and all the things, because yeah. to your point, it's difficult work. It's difficult work. And so I I'm you know, I'm surprised they ain't wrote me up at the universities because I'm always like, listen, y'all in here and <laughs> y'all need to be doing your own work and be yes. working for your own shit yes. before you go out talking about you about to save somebody's lives. You need to save your own lives. You, like, you, you know? first. You first. you first. You first. And I think there are some folks who do that and then there's some folks who don't and you can just see what happens trajectory rise for them for the folks that just never absolutely. attend to their own absolutely see when you put it in that perspective it makes me think about my own journey to my end in social work because my end practicing this work it's coming I know that it is mm -hmm. and now mm -hmm. I'm going to reflect on is like me approaching the end of kind of this phase of my career as a social worker in this way has a lot to do with I'm not trying to resolve anything anymore Mm. right like um I've been doing my own work I'm very clear about who I am what I want to contribute to this world what I stand for yeah. what I don't like I'm very clear about who I am and that goes mm. back to like showing up authentically where I don't have anything else internal I, there's always going to be shit to work on but like I don't have like the big stuff um that I'm yeah. trying to resolve so I'm really getting to the point where I feel settled and I'm like I'm ready to leave the work <laughs> and go mm -hmm. do something else um, and mm -hmm. your, your example of like, it's not so much a call, but more, more or less like we're looking to resolve something. It makes me think about that. So thank you for offering that. Thank you for offering mm -hmm. that. So doctor, 
you have been running a private practice for a number of years now. How long have you been doing that? And what's the name of it? Building Endurance. So Building Endurance, and we just celebrated eight years. Wow. Wow. So mm -hmm. like you were in the private practice, group practice game prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where a lot of people, a lot of people jumped into private practice um, during the pandemic and kind of stayed in it right after the fact yeah. what have you noticed in terms of the shift like pre-covid and post-covid in like the private practice space yeah. yeah i do not think um that people should go from school to private practice absolutely not um and even my best interns who you know i'm like you need some other experience. You need to go and be in the homes and in the schools and the yeah. communities. Like you need to learn some skills um, before you get settled in in private practice. And yeah. private practice in North Carolina is very different. Mm. I mean, talk to us about that. Different in, than it is in other states. Yeah. Um, so it first of all, they don't pay us agency-wise, nearly what we need to get paid. And the way Medicaid is distributed in North Carolina looks very differently in other states. In other states, there are more um, there are more community opportunities, there are more county opportunities, state opportunities. There just there just seems to be a different set of resources where in North Carolina and Charlotte in particular, it's like if you're doing agency work, you're doing in-home. Mm. And if you're not doing home you're in the hospital and if mm. you're not in the hospital you're in private practice that's what it feels like like the gap where supposed aren't to somewhat, so like aren't really developed yeah yeah exactly exactly or like even when I worked in New York there were there was a more of an integrated health model so there yeah. were a lot of clinics yeah where you can get all the services you know what I mean the, the dentist is there the nutritionist is there so it's just very interesting um folks looking for a job what they're expecting and then being shocked like oh shit that, that this, that's that. not the pay that I was yeah. this ain't that um <laughs> and, and and I think too like because people get a bad taste in their mouth at certain agencies they're like well I'm just gonna I'm gonna just go do my own thing but you got to pay the cost to be the boss I, I tell people all the time um it's not it, it's not all sunshine and roses wow. having that liability trying to support yourself like it's not what you think it is. And I and I really want people to, again, be able to be in other spaces and learn that there are other skills you need. There are Absolutely. other valuable skills. There are a ton of jobs you can do with the MSW that have nothing to do with private practice, you know? Not a damn thing to do with private practice. Nothing to do with private practice. Yeah. And I mean, I'll always stand on the fact that anybody that went and got their MSW, if all they're trying to do is go open up a private practice, why'd you go get an MSW? Yeah. Like you could have went and got a counseling degree or like a different type of mental health degree, but like social work, a master's in social work yeah. is not the degree you go get if all you want to do is private practice because the skill sets that we have that are necessary, that are critical, that a lot of folks who just go the private practice route couldn't even fathom doing. Like I've been able to engage with folks in private practice who couldn't even help somebody like sign up for Medicaid or didn't know the crisis pr process in terms of like activating in the crisis system to try to get somebody placed in the hospital, right? So like that's the type of mm -hmm. stuff that you really learn when you are out in the field doing the work so for your practice yeah. you have clinicians within your practice because you mentioned earlier you don't really see clients how you used to so how many how many clinicians are at your practice so right now is five um, yeah five clinicians and then I have like mm, seven interns wow yeah, probably seven interns and five clinicians. Um, and it kind of rotates because I have an internship program and externship program. So folks that are done with school and then that like waiting period for their license and then um, clinicians. And it's a lot. I, I, I mean, yeah. I didn't go to business school. So they should have taught us some of that. There should have been an elective or something in grad school about it, though. It should have been. There should have been, but there isn't one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. 
Yeah. See, even even yours. So yeah, I've mm-hmm. listen. I've I've had this conversation with a couple of folks in private practice. It's really not as rosy as TikTok or like Instagram would make people seem. Private practice is some hard ass work. And, and everybody ain't making a hundred thousand dollars. Hell no. Nah. There all these people talk about you could become a six figure therapist, social worker. That's real cute. But a lot of these folks ain't really breaking that at the end of the year. That might be their overall like expenses, but that shit went right back into running that private practice. That's not what they got at the end of the year. Um, and I think a lot of people just have to be honest and be like, some people are just employees, and that is okay. And that's okay. everybody is not an employer. Some Mm-mm. people are honest to God, just employees and go work the job. Like there's yep. nothing to be lost by accepting you are a really great employee. There's nothing wrong with that. Yep. Um, yep. And so I think a lot of folks who are coming into this work kind of in the newer end of the career or like students, don't, don't jump straight to private practice. You're not ready. No, you need to do community work. You need to understand the community that you're serving. I always tell folks like you, you need to know, like, where are the gaps? So this is who I'm serving. I'm passionate about maternal health. Great. What are mothers missing Mm -hmm. in my community? Mm -hmm. Where, where, what, what subgroup amongst mothers are not being served? You know what I mean? Like that, you can't get that being in private practice. You don't, you don't know that being in private practice. Not at all. But that stuff is in the room with you with that client because they're out there living, trying to navigate life amongst all those barriers and gaps. And that's causing some of the symptoms of anxiety and depression and whatever else that they're in their office trying to receive support and treatment for. So like, if you don't understand all the systems of oppression that's surrounding that person that is sitting before you, then you can't even mm-hmm. be an effective private practice therapist. Um, nope. So yeah, private practice is not for everybody. Some people are just really great employees and anybody coming straight out of school, private practice is not where you need to land first at all, at mm-hmm. all. So we know you were a big boss. We know you're an educator. You're also the, <laughs> you're also the responsible human for tiny humans. And um, what is that like for you, right? Balancing your family, also, you know, yourself, right? And your own development and exploring all the things that bring you joy. So, and how are you, how are you going about balancing your family and your purpose? Yeah, it's a wild time because I never planned to be a mother. Um, I was supposed to be the fly single rich aunt. That was my, you know, my sister was supposed to be the mother and have all the kids. Um <laughs> So the fact that I am responsible for so many people is really interesting. Um, every day, I'm like, how did I, how did I get here? In this situation. Um, how did I find myself here? And, you know, it's very scary. It's very yeah. scary parenting in the world right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I am very, I'm an anxious person in general, but I'm not an anxious parent, surprisingly. Mm. And I think I have so many, like I need help. And so I'm not the mother that's like, nobody can watch my kids. I'm like, Here. No, let me run the back check and then you can, you, know, you want to keep them for days? Absolutely. Yeah. You want to sleep like, you know, come to my house. You know what I mean? So I think that definitely comes from just needing the help um, yeah. as a single mother. I need the help. Um, but I'm also just very concerned with them being well-rounded. Like it's yeah. really important to me for them to be able to like hold their own. Um, and I want them to, my biggest focus right now is them being able to be a kid um, and not feel like they have to take care of me, you know? And so I'm, I like when they're laughing and playing and running and jumping and flipping and making a mess because I'm like, that's what kids should be doing. Like they should be messy. You know what I'm saying? Um, and, you know, there's some responsibility. We, I treat it like Montessori style at my house. So like we have community values. We all have a role in our community. Um, we do a lot of stuff together. Um, but I'm also very clear with them about like, we will vacation together and I vacation on my own. You know what I mean? And yeah. so um, it's really important for me, for me to be mentally well, because I think that impacts my parenting. Absolutely. Um, and I've just, I've had people who, you know, my kids are not my life. When people say stuff like that, I'm like, that's not healthy. They say it again. Say it again. <laughs> Your, Your kids, kids are should what? not be your life. 
Ooh. Yeah, that's a they're gonna grow up and they're gonna leave you. Yeah, because so they don't I, belong to the parent. They like, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I I don't I don't use this type of language. I don't have the like they are their own person. Yes. Um and <clears throat> I think when well, they can be well. You yeah. know what I mean? Because I know what it's like. I know why people get CPS reports. I know where it's like, oh, this is why yes. this person is at the brink you know what I'm saying yeah. so um it is difficult but I definitely use my village I ask for help um and I don't I, my life is not centered on them yeah. and I don't know if that sounds bad but it's it's not don't sound know. bad to me that sounds yeah. um that sounds like what uh, a lot of folks who are in that caregiver or parenting capacity really need to work towards is yeah your kids are, are not your life, mm -mm. right? And I think and the reason I like when you say that, it makes me think about my work on the other side of it of like supporting youth and young adults mm -hmm. whose parents have really fucked them up. I'm gonna just have to say it like that. It really yeah. fucked them up to believe that they don't own their own decisions, their dreams, their future. They don't have autonomy over their choices and beliefs and all of this stuff because their parents have really made like raising them everything that they are to the point where yeah. the parent is very unsure about who they are as a person separate yep. of being somebody's parent caregiver or, or guardian, right? So I think yep. a lot of parents and caregivers and guardians need to do the work of recognizing that that is not the center of everything that you are because you were something else before you became that. And if you only became mm -hmm. that, meaning a parent, because you didn't know who you were, then, then baby. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Or what I've seen, too, especially when I was younger, um, I know quite a bit of people who like, oh, well, I'm going to either have this kid to keep a man. He will leave you. He will leave you and the kid. So Absolutely. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in At having all. a kid. To keep a man. Um, <laughs> That's just selfish I, and stupid. Yeah. Yeah, it's stupid. But I, I also know people who are like, I'm going to have a kid because they're going to love me unconditionally. They don't that have too to. is not true. That's, that's it. They don't have to. They don't have to. So it's really interesting. Um, yeah, people's decision to go into parenting and to your point, not realizing how much we do or don't take care of ourselves really impacts the kid. Yeah, I that's this is a, a podcast episode for a different day, but I really wish there was like some sort of requirement where parents had this like this checklist before they could even bring another life into the world. That's true. Oh, like my they do in other countries and people, you know, right. talk about it. Like we because adults be out here messing yeah. kids up the long way, but it really sounds like you're working every day. You don't got it all figured out. It don't even sound like you're trying to have it all figured out, but like you have an awareness of what you're working towards every day of finding the balance of making sure you're holding true to who you are, what brings you joy, yep. what brings you peace, the things that you love, and also supporting and nurturing the growth of tiny humans, but not like dropping them in the center of your world and then forgetting, right? What really brings you other means of joy outside of mm -hmm. them outside mm -hmm. of them um and so some other means of joy that I definitely want to make sure we talk about is hood rat shit and so mm -hmm. I love asking the question of like what does hood rat shit look like to you what you like to do mm -hmm. I love to party um <laughs> so nice that I don't have them <laughs> I love a good time Kim yeah, yeah, I love yeah, a good yeah. time I love to be with my friends I love to eat good. I'm gonna always eat like um drug a well a very wealthy Maybe. drug dealer. Every time order the top things on the menu. Um and I take myself out to eat every week. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna do that tonight when we when we wrap up. I'm I gonna take that. myself out to my favorite restaurant. I'm gonna sit and I'm gonna talk to the bartender yes. and I'm gonna eat me a good meal. Um so yeah, I love to party. I um I love to travel and not always internationally. I just like discovering new cities um, mm -hmm. um i like to go to stores um at the places that i visit i like to see like how the city functions i'm very very interested in like what's the town square like yeah. where does everybody hang out like I, that really interests me um i love music of all types i'm always listening to some music but i also love quiet too yeah. um 
so yeah that's a little bit of yeah. yeah, that's some real, uh, well-rounded hood rat activities, right? And mm -hmm. I see myself in those. I love doing the majority of that shit as well. One of my favorites is actually to take myself out to eat by myself and like sit at the bar. Oh my god! Oh, oh my yeah. God. Um, yeah. so yeah. I want to wrap it up here. And the final question that I want to ask you is like, when it's all said and done, because I don't get the impression from you that social work is your period right like the end of all things mm -hmm. um so then what legacy in this work are you hoping to leave behind I specifically in this work that's a good question um and I probably should have prepared an answer mm -mm. don't be no no Capricorn get out your head move, <laughs> it, on down. move it on down um, heart through the gut yeah <laughs> I so yeah I gotta stick to I'm just I really want to leave people with you gotta know yourself the best and the 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 more of your own work that you do the more you're able to shine and touch and heal and all the things but like trying to blindly and by blindly like you don't know you and you're just trying to like fix everybody around you the more the more harm there is so I love when people say stuff like oh we did this in class and it made me think this about this and that like I love that I love mm -hmm. to hear people say like, oh yeah and it reminded me of I used to enjoy blah 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 um because I just think there's so much power in knowing yourself and it can keep you safe from other people as well I I don't like to see people taken advantage of. Yeah. Um. So, and I know that in certain situations, when you don't know yourself well enough, you can you can find yourself in a situation where somebody is taking advantage of you. You know, yeah. whether that's romantic or even professionally, because you're not sure of your own boundaries, you're not sure of what feels good to you. So, that's really, really, I think what I want to leave for folks: the just that attunement with yourself is so important. I love that. I love that. Um, Dr. Alicia, thank you. Thank you for making thank some time you. to come and drop some gems and some wisdom with the folk, good people. Where can folks yeah. follow you? Or just make sure they're um, tuned in to the work that you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Definitely LinkedIn. I have been posting, trying to post more things there. So definitely Alicia Tete on LinkedIn. Um, Building Endurance PLLC um on instagram and on google if you're looking for some therapy um and i'm in the i'm i'm you know i'm reinventing myself right now so i think i'm about yeah, to come back it. as like a poet therapist yes so i'm gonna <laughs> think i'm about to delete all my photos and start putting my little poetry but yeah i'm in my reinvention era so don't follow my personal page because i'm about to be somebody else so. <laughs> i love it I love it. <laughs> thank you for your time and thank you for your wisdom, yeah. truly. Yeah. That was a good conversation, right? And like ever since the conversation with Dr. Alicia, I really have been reflecting on like, is this work a calling or is it a place to resolve your own shit? Or is it both? Because multiple truths exist and the both and is a place I like to operate in. And so this work can be a calling and it could be a place to resolve your own shit. And it's really interesting to find myself in this place of feeling more confident and more settled into walking away from social work the way I have known it because I don't know what else there is to resolve for me. Like I'm really at this place of, of you know, peace is what people often call it, but it's really like freedom. Like I really am arriving to a place of like internal liberation and freedom where I don't feel the need to resolve anything. So therefore, I don't really feel a connection to the work how I once did, which naturally means it's time for me to evolve in how I show up and engage and practice social work. And so, yeah, that was a good conversation that has left me in a place of reflection. And I'm hopeful that you were able to collect something from it as well that you will reflect on. And um, I believe that's all I got for us this week. So y'all already know what it is. Like, please remember to take care of your hearts, 
so that we can take care of each other because y'all we all we got and we will chat next time